Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. He will be Father Nicanor Ostriaco, Ph.D., bioengineer, ethicist, and Dominican, who will be explaining to us the risks and benefits of home genetic testing. We're going to start, Tom, with some backgrounds on this whole genetic idea and genes and such. When we say genes, we're not talking about the things that we're wearing. No denim involved. (laughs) (laughs) In biology, a gene, uh, you know, in medicine, we love our words. And sometimes half the battle is just knowing the vocabulary, isn't it? Yes, it is. Especially in your specialty of dermatology. I love it. You know, <laughs> you know, little diseases like erosioblastomycetica interdigitalis. It's just great. It befuddles everybody else. It makes us feel like we actually have a purpose. I rest my case. Yes. <laughs> so in biology, a gene is a sequence of DNA that it encodes uh, the production of, of something. We call that something the gene product. Usually, but not always, that product is a protein. So the transmission of genes to your offspring is the basis of inheritance of several traits. So most traits are under the influence of a group of genes, and that has a fancy word called polygenes, uh, and that's a bunch of different genes that come together and interact with each other and sometimes interact with environmental factors. And these genes that... uh our instructions for making proteins. Father Nicanor on a previous show described these products as little machines. And I (laughs) love the way that he described that because that's what an enzyme is. It's a little machine that helps process one thing into something else. Yeah, and traits, genetic traits, some of them are instantly visible. Mm -hmm. You know, we can look at someone's eye color or how many limbs they have or something like that. But most gene traits are, are invisible. You know, things like blood type or thousands of biochemical processes that involve enzymes and other things that, that really constitute the life of an organism, or in, your, in our case, humans, right? Um, mutations, which is something we'll talk about tonight, I'm sure, are changes in genes that lead to different products other than what the genes ordinarily uh, designed to produce. And scientists call those variants alleles, and I'm sure we'll hear that phrase probably used as well. So, for instance, for eye color, there's an allele for blue, there's an allele for brown, there's an allele for hazel, whatever that is, although I supposedly have it, et cetera. (laughs) Exactly. Each one, each variant is an allele, and each allele sometimes has its own unique product. Uh, Mutations in these genes, they make different versions of the protein than the original or the so-called non mutated gene. Uh, And the mutated gene and its different products can cause different traits. Maybe in your example, a different eye color, maybe the presence of a cancer uh, in, in other mutations. Correct. Or the likelihood of being more susceptible to cancer yeah. than some other people. Exactly. So genes are made up, we throw the word around DNA. Now, you and I are old enough to remember when DNA was just being talked about as a new discovery. Now it's commonplace. But DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. We should make that a trivia question one night. Uh, and it's shown to be the molecular basis of really all genetic information. And it was shown way back in the 40s and 50s, a long time ago. Um, the structure of DNA was studied, now most people don't know this little trivia, by a woman named Rosalind Franklin and a man named Maurice Wilkins. Uh, and they were using X-ray technology, and they actually really described the size and the shape of DNA so that the famous scientists Watson and Crick could go on later to get the Nobel Prize for the double-handed Double, not double-handed, double-handed <laughs> double-stranded helix that all eighth-grade biology students know and, how And to in draw. fact, if you read the history of how F- Watson and Crick discovered this, uh, it was really <coughs> Rosalind Franklin. They called her, called her Rosie. It was her X-ray crystallography photographs or microphotographs that really unlocked it, and finally they figured out, oh, it was a bizarre shape they had not even considered. But she's the one that gave them that secret of the double helix, or or like what you might see as a, a, a spiral staircase going up. Exactly. I and mean, it's fascinating stuff, and it was done so long ago when the technology was, was so limited. Uh, so genetic testing today, as I think we'll talk about, it's, 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 uh, as it relates to clinical medicine anyway, 
it involves looking at DNA in search for certain mutations uh, that could lead to illness or, as you pointed out, susceptibility uh, to certain illness or to give us a probability that we might develop an illness. Ancestry genetic testing, as I know we're going to talk about tonight, that's another whole area uh, of interest. If I can show you as a patient that you have a certain genetic ancestry, I might be able to say, and by the way, you're at risk for a whole... Uh, a whole list of diseases and conditions that we should think about before they start to show themselves. There's all sorts of genetic tests out there that we're going to talk about. One that's near and dear to my specialty is called cell-free DNA. And did you know that pregnant women have little pieces of their baby's DNA floating around in their bloodstream? I didn't know that until just before the show. You told me. (laughs) (laughs) Someone much smarter than me figured this out and then further figured out that they could draw the mother's blood, separate the mother's DNA from the baby's DNA, and then evaluate the baby's DNA. Now, this allows to look for chromosomal abnormalities or mutations, as we talked about, uh, without doing an invasive test called an amniocentesis, where a needle is put to the mom's stomach and into the, the cavity around the baby. Just remarkable, the information, with nothing more than just a blood draw. Uh, there's all kinds of carrier testing that's used to identify people who carry one copy maybe of a gene mutation. If they married another copy and had children together, there's a certain probability their children would have the various condition uh, of question. So a lot of information can be gained from carrier testing. Cystic fibrosis is probably the most common carrier testing. Right, because both parents have to give to the child the gene for the the bad form of the allele. Exactly. And in some cases, being a carrier provides protection. So being a carrier for uh, sickle cell anemia, for That's instance. That's the one example. Yeah, it, it protects people from malaria. But sickle cell disease, if you have both carriers, Is that's really bad. Bad news. Uh, one that's really important, uh, again, in my specialty that we may hear from one of our guests tonight, uh, is called gene site testing. And that looks at how a patient will respond to the various different forms and classes of antidepressant medications. So it's really fascinating. I can test you in advance of giving you a medication in an effort to figure out which of the medications might give you a better response with lower side effects. That would have been science fiction just a few years ago, and today it's commonplace. Personalized medicine is on its way. (laughs) And then another one that we've talked about on other shows, we also use a lot in women's health, is the so-called BRCA or B-R-A-C-A testing, where we actually have genes that are designed to produce products that fight cancer. So if you have a mutation in a cancer fighter, you may not be as good at fighting that cancer and therefore more likely to get it. So by that testing, we can tell a woman, are you more likely than the general population to get breast cancer or maybe a man colon cancer or pancreatic cancer? So fascinating stuff available. And it all boils down to DNA, the double-stranded helix, and genes. And I can't wait to talk to Father Nicanor. He is full of good humor and a very uh, clear and unique way of presenting information. I'm sure his students at uh, Providence College just love him. But before we get there, we've got to go to the trivia question. We do. If we were playing the game of Jeopardy, our category would be one-syllable scientific words. This word was coined in 1905 by Danish scientist Wilhelm Ludwig Johansson from a Greek word meaning race, from a Proto-Indo-European root meaning give birth or beget. This scientific word has found its way into everyday usage and describes a group of over 20,000 distinct entities found in the human body. What is this word? We'll be back with Father Nicanor and more on home genetic testing here on Dr. Doctor after the break. We're back with our special guest today, Father Nicanor Ostriaco, a Dominican PhD. He got his undergrad degree in bioengineering from University of Pennsylvania, a PhD in biology from MIT. He was ordained a priest in 2004. 
He got uh, a doctorate in sacred theology at the University of Freiburg in Switzerland in 2005. Currently, he's a professor of biology and theology at Providence College in Rhode Island. He runs a lab there that does research and typically is funded by the National Institutes of Health. He wrote a book that was published in 2011 by Catholic University of America Press called Biomedicine and Beatitude, an Introduction to Catholic Bioethics. And episode 33 of Dr. Doctor, and we're over 100 now, was with Father Nicanor, on the scientific and moral aspects of gene editing. You can find that on your favorite podcast platform. And it was one of the most enjoyable interviews I have done. Father Nicanor, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you very much for having me again. Father Nicanor, it's it's great to have you with us. I know all of our listeners right now have pulled over to the side of the road if they're listening in their car, and they're thinking, did Tom say a Ph.D. in biology and theology, or did I misunderstand? No, so I have two doctorates. My first doctorate is in molecular biology from MIT. And the second one is actually not a PhD per se. It's a doctorate in sacred theology. It's a pontifical degree that's granted by the Vatican. And I got that for, uh, from the University of Freiburg in Switzerland. So in this wasn't theology. just serial box tops that you sent in. You really <laughs> did the work. Yeah, I'm a geek for God. You know, that's <laughs> we do this. We nice. do this. We study. We study for the gospel. We study for Christ. Well, <laughs> I love it. That's fabulous. Well, Father, there's so much interest in home uh, genetic testing. If no other, if there's no other evidence of that, it would be the number of commercials that that our viewers see on TV. Why, why do you think this is happening, and what do you what do you think is going on? Well, two things. I think that. We naturally are, we have a curiosity for where we are from. And I think that the availability of these apparently relatively inexpensive genetic tests that promise a vast, a vast amount of information to our, about our origins, where we've come from, is very attractive to people, especially for people who spent a lot of time working over the last several decades on their family pedigrees. And now you, you know, and you don't have to go, with your family pedigrees, you could probably go back several hundred years with these genetic tests. The possibility of going back thousands of years is actually very realistic. Wow, that's amazing. And, then, and this is all related to our ability to increasingly map the entire human genome, isn't it? That's correct. So what usually happens in these genetic tests is that you are asked to provide a cell sample, and that's really that's relatively easy. What they ask you to do is they take like a Q-tip. You're supposed to take the Q-tip and swab the inside of your cheek to remove some of the very, uh, uh, very, the, the, the very common cells there. And, they sh- and then you're supposed to send those cells to the company. The company takes the DNA from those cells and process that DNA in order to extract information from that DNA. And then we can go ahead and compare your information with the information from all the DNAs from people from all over the world. And by comparing them and seeing how they're the same and how they're different, we can figure out who's related to whom, and we can figure out how far back you were related to someone. So how is it that different ancestral groups, different cultures, different parts of the world have developed different genes? I thought we were all human beings. So what's, what are the differences? <laughs> That's actually a wonderful question. So we actually all have the same genes for the most part. But, it, 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 uh, you know, if you look at DNA, DNA is information. And we have 46 chromosomes in our DNA. And each chromosome can be imagined to be like the volume of an encyclopedia. So there's like 46 uh, copies, 46 volumes of this encyclopedia in our, in our cells. And... Most of the sentences are identical, but every so often there's a spelling mistake. So in one person, the word boy may actually be spelled B-O-Y, while in the other one it's actually D-O-Y. And by comparing those very subtle changes in the DNA, we can figure out who's related to whom, and we can trace the history of that of that DNA and therefore of that individual way back into history. So did they have to take a number of samples of DNA from people in different parts of the world where you, where you knew their ancestry to come up with the comparison groups? Yeah, so what, what actually happens is that, in fact, 
as time passes, as more and more individuals contribute their DNA to this library of DNA that's in computers all over the world, it becomes easier and more precise to figure out mm. how one particular person fits in to the puzzle of, of the history of all the human beings that God has created. So how accurate do you think these tests are with determining our own ancestry? That's a very good question, because one of my students actually tried the tests using two separate kits ah. from two separate companies. And what's interesting is that the, the results are not exactly identical, but they have significant overlap such that the general conclusions are probably reliable. So, for example, they can tell you, you know, about 60% of your DNA is from Spain. Well, one group, one test may say it's 62, mm. the other test may say it's 57, but one test is not going to say you're from Thailand, and the other one is going to say you're from Spain. So I the see. numbers may be not identical, but the general, the general trends are pretty reliable. Now, I remember looking online at some of these, the areas were quite large that it could pinpoint. Actually, pinpoint didn't seem to be a good word. It was like huge swaths of Africa. African countries were covered by, you know, one of the groups or large swaths of Europe. Is that still the case, or have they become better at pinpointing a smaller geographic region? Well, you, you have to keep this in mind, right, that in order for them to identify a very specific location, you need to have enough individuals from that location be willing to give their DNA to the, uh, to the analyzers. Good point. So right now, for example... Uh, European genomes are highly favored. So I'm a Filipino. My genome is from the Philippines. And so when, you, when, I, when I went through one of these tests several years ago, it be, became very clear that, that the data that they gave me, the results that they gave me were not as good as the results they would have given a Caucasian individual simply because there are simply more Caucasians in the database than there are Filipinos. Uh -huh. But over time, these tests become are improved because more and more people are investing $99 or $149 or whatever it is in order to get their, their, their genomes tested. Wow, that's fascinating, Father. So, you know, so often in medicine and my specialty of OBGYN, sometimes the, the demand has got in front of the science, or at least the science has got in front of the ethics. Uh, is there a downside to doing this ancestry testing? Is it something we could do but maybe shouldn't do? So the challenge is that the very same test that can tell you where your family is from can also identify disease dispositions in your family. Mm -hmm. And that's really where the challenge is. Because, for example, you can, you can get your DNA analyzed and you can say, I just want my ancestry. And they can do that. And there are companies that will do it for, say, $99. But in addition, for, you can click a couple of boxes, pay an extra 50 bucks, and they'll actually be able to tell you if you have any predispositions to cancer or predispositions to Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or assortment of any other diseases. And that's really where the moral, challenges, moral challenge arises because I had a 20-year-old student come to see me because they discovered in her family that there was a mutation in a gene BRCA1 associated with breast cancer. Yes. Sure, and sure. she, you know, she was terrified to be tested because she knew that if her test came back and that she was carrying a mutant form of this gene, then she would have to be faced with really difficult decisions regarding her health that would impact her ability to have children in the future. Mm. And she wasn't even sure if she was psychologically ready to know whether or not she was predisposed to cancer. And yet, what, one of the things that's striking is knowing that she could know was already a source of anxiety. Oh, sure. So, we had, you know, so, so, so as a priest, I had a walk with her. Uh, she, and so what ended up happening, she eventually took the test and God, you know, Thanks be to God, she didn't carry that allele, mm. but it was incredibly stressful. She realized that she needed to know, so she could sleep at night, whether or not she had that mutation. And she was willing to face the very difficult 
medical decisions. And I think, and, you know, if, you're, if your audience is wondering, wondering what sort of medical decisions, yes. if you remember Angelina Jolie. Yes. Sure. So Angelina Jolie discovered that I believe she carried one of these uh, mutant yes. forms of a gene. And so she had her breasts removed and I believe her ovaries removed. That's right. Yeah. Because these are tissues that are prone to cancer if you have mutations in these genes. And so, you know, a 20-year-old college student faced with these decisions who wants to have children, that's really, really difficult. And so we had to talk about what the options would be even before she decided whether or not she would would undertake the the genetic test to figure out if she, in fact, carried that gene. So what could be done mm -hmm. if the 20-year-old woman found out she had the BRCA1 mutation? Is there something that medicine offers her? Well, I think, you know, I'm not a physician, but just as, a, as someone who's familiar with genetics and as a priest of Jesus Christ, I mean, we, 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 we had a conversation and we talked about how, you know, she wanted to have kids. And I told her that it, it, it is a prudential decision on her part. She, would, she was willing, if she had carried the mutation, to basically uh, have children early. And then once she uh, had her children, she would actually then remove, have the surgery done to remove her breasts and her ovaries. And so she was willing to, to undertake that risk. Uh, and so, you know, her physician, her physician reassured her that regular mammograms during the, during the point, you know, before she had her breasts removed would be able to identify early tumors. And she was willing to take that risk for the sake of her children. You know, I, I hate to even bring it up, Father, but if I am the CEO of an insurance company, maybe a life insurance company, and I find out someone who wants to buy a policy maybe has the opportunity to have, you know, a disease that's going to cause me, the insurance company, to pay out, uh, I would try to keep her out of, you know, the insurance pool. Have, oh. have we seen that, and how do we, uh, how do we address that? That's, a, that's an incredibly important debate, because it, it, it's very clear, if you get, if you have your entire genome analyzed, it is likely that every single human being is going to be carrying some mutation yes. that is going to predispose him or her to some disease. And so when we talk about confidentiality, we, t- we have to talk about who gets to see your DNA and to gets to see the results. I don't think we as a society have really had the conversation that we need to have about that, especially, I mean, Talk about privacy breaches. I mean, we have mm. credit card, we have credit card information being stolen from big companies every so often. And, and the concern here is that we could have a breach in a firewall for one of these companies, and many of their customers would have their DNA sequence information stolen or leaked or made public in a way that would be detrimental yeah. to them. And it literally doesn't get more personal than that, does it? Your your DNA is the most personal thing you could possibly can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Father, I've heard from a number of people who would be interested in knowing their ancestry information that they don't want to order it because they know somebody would have their DNA sequence. Is that true? And how would you respond to them? So that, that is true, and I know that, for example, some of the companies that I've seen online when I've worked with my students who are interested in this, they have, they have re- published incredibly stringent regulations that, 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 that attempt to protect the information that, uh, for those customers. And again, uh, what's really striking is if you think about it, your hospitals have your information, right? Mm. So a hospital is a money-making enterprise. And so it's interesting that we're, we're so cautious about companies and, and yet a hospital's company. Now, I think one of the reasons why we are rightfully concerned about that is that we are concerned that these companies will sell our information to right. other mm-hmm. individuals who will want to mine that information. And I think that the, these direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies are aware that so much of their business and so much of their reputation relies on the confidentiality and the trust that the public has. So for example, the company that I that I sent my DNA to, they routinely every few months send me an update for their privacy rules. And if they always invite me to participate in research, 
but that's something that I have to give an okay to before they before anyone can access my information. So, Father, what did you do when you did the test? Did you do it just for ancestry, or did you look at disease no, risk I, also? Yeah, I actually happened to run into an employee of one of these companies who was like willing to give me a free kit. <laughs> and, you know, I am so curious about science and about anything. And so I had everything done. And I was aware I'm a molecular biologist. I'm also a priest. You know, I think that gives me a certain perspective. I'm going to live forever. I know that regardless of what the genetics says. It just won't be here. <laughs> it just won't be here. And I know that when I rise from the dead, um, my genome will rise as well, and it too will be glorified <laughs> and redeemed. And I wanted to figure out what that genome had to say for my life, for my life on this side of the uh, of eternity. And so um, I got to see that. I got to see my genetic ancestry. I, you know, my family. I found out that there's there's like five percentage, five percent of my DNA is from Spain, which makes sense because the Filipino. Yes. People have deep Spanish roots because of the colonial Ma period. Magellan's crew. <laughs> uh, Magellan, Catholicism, Dominicans. Yep. Yes. We are grateful to God for, for that. So it was wonderful to be able to trace my, my ancestry back. Hmm. And with regards to the health, there were no surprises. Ah. They basically confirmed what my family knew about our general predispositions to disease were. They just kind of confirmed that and... Uh, so, you know, gratefully, the information that I got didn't really scare me or scare anyone else. Now, Father, oh. I mean, because you get to live in two separate worlds, have you encountered conflicts between sort of the science and maybe the theology? And when I say that, I'm thinking, you know, if, if I learn that uh, I have a very high probability of developing a devastating cancer, um, mm -hmm. I think it would be tempting to become kind of fatalistic about it. So, um, you know, my prayer life and and all of these things that the church teaches, well, it doesn't apply to me because a test said that I'm going to die of cancer. Uh, have you encountered people that struggle with that, what what could be seen as a conflict? Um, I personally not encountered them, but whenever I tell my students, I begin with this, you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> so... Whether you die from cancer, whether you die from Parkinson's, whether you're going to die because you're hit by a truck, you're going to die. Hmm. And I think that puts it into perspective. And then I don't end there. You will rise from the dead. And so once you see this from within the horizon of eternity, hmm. it changes things. Now, naturally, there's going to be anxiety and a certain fear associated with illness and disease. Uh, especially in an age that is heavily secularized, that that wants to to flatten our horizon, so all we see is what we can see with our eyes mm. and feel with our hands. And I think, and and you're right. But I mean, you know, before I'm a molecular biologist, I am a priest. I'm a Christian, and so when my students come to talk to me about genetics, they know they're talking to someone who knows he will live forever, and that changes a lot. Wow, that's really changes everything. Father, that's, that's you have given us great information. We're, we're going to take a quick break here and be right back with more of Father Nicanor, Home Genetic Testing on Dr. Doctor from Redeemer Radio. We're back with the second half of the interview with Father Nicanor Ostriaco on home genetic testing. Now, the fact that we're calling it home genetic testing belays the point that there is physician office or hospital genetic testing. What's the difference between the two, Father? Well, the, the techniques are pretty similar, but the difference is that someone who's getting tested because his physician requested it is being tested within a context where the results will be properly explained to him so that he can understand what these results mean. One of the things I think many, many uh, lay people don't understand is that these, re these genetic results are statistical. They're probabilistic. They can't tell you if you will 100% get cancer for the most part. There are certain diseases where you have a genetic mutation, they can predict that you will have it at some point in your life. But for the most part, most disease, our, our medical understanding today is such that they can talk about things probabilistically. They'll say you have a higher likelihood than a typical person that you will get this disease. Now, if you were doing this test within the context of an annual checkup, 
your physician would be able to sit there, would be able to explain what these numbers mean, put these numbers into context. One of the current concerns I have with direct-to-consumer home genetic testing is that these results are made available to you online. You're supposed to just click an email link, and all of a sudden these numbers pop up in front of you. They, they speak to you with a whole bunch of numbers. They speak to you with a whole bunch of medicalese, and they attempt to explain what these things mean. But uh, my experience from just talking to ordinary people is that, that, that they don't have the biological or medical background to fully appreciate how to interpret not only the results but to un- better understand the impact of these results on their lives. Yeah, it's really interesting, and that's Father. that's the difference. Yeah, you know, when I've gone through maybe BRCA gene testing results with patients, you know, as, as human beings, we hear the word cancer and we stop thinking. Um, and right. And so to just mail an email something that tells a patient that they have an increased risk of cancer without context, and, and then listening to you, I'm reminded, context means an understanding of the biology, but also uh, context can mean relationship and trust from someone that's inter- helping you interpret and, and understand. I mean, data comes from Google, but knowledge is, is, <laughs> <laughs> knowledge is a little harder that's to come true. by than, than data. Well, and you know, and, and, and a patient who finds out that, that she has an increased propensity to something is going to want to know what next. Sure. You know, and if she has a physician in front of her, the physician is able to sit down and and quietly, in a moment of crisis, be able to reassure her that regardless of what happened, she is not going to be alone. Mm. And I am concerned that the whole ecosystem associated with these genetic home tests focuses on an individual who is trying to find out information about his personal genome without the advantage of the community that is that, that should be there to help him figure out not only how to fig- to understand what those results are, but how, how he is to live going forward. You know, Father, um, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when HIV first, you know, came onto the scene. And uh, we had discussions very similar to what you've just described about giving a patient their HIV results. Because even then we realized you, you can't just lay devastating, potentially devastating news in mm-hmm. someone's lap and then just walk away. Um, That's correct. And, and unfortunately, the whole industry in so many ways is set up so that those sort of scenarios <laughs> happen more, 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 you know, more frequently than they should. Wow. It's just another example that uh, great technology is great, but it doesn't take the place of human relationship, does it? Right. And it forgets that people are emotional beings, <laughs> right? It's not just about what goes on in the head. It has to deal with emotions, with fear and love and anxiety and desire, and genetic tests can't deal with those. Father, are there any situations in which you think it would be a good idea for a general layperson to order one of these tests for uh, diseases versus waiting to see if a physician thinks it's worth ordering from the office? Uh, Honestly, off the top of my head, no. (laughs) I think the ancestry is really good. You know, if you want to know if you're going to be bald, just wait a five years. <laughs> um, it's going to happen. And, and here's the thing, right? We don't really know much about human balding. So we don't. I'm a dermatologist. Out, I don't realize don't. that. If you, if, you, if you find out that you've read a gene that predispos- predisposes you to male pattern baldness, well, you'll, you'll, you'll know. And <laughs> right. you don't need a genetic test. And, and the difficulty is that, the, like I said, I cannot imagine a disease that you would need to know about in such a way that, 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 that you would take the risk of, of, of trying to figure out without having the physician be there with you. And, and one of the things I tell people is your genome doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your family. And this is really important to keep in mind because if you discover that you have a, pre-genetic, a, a genetic predisposition to something, it is likely that other members of your family will have that predisposition. Mm. So I always encourage people to speak to their family. You know, this is uh, one of the things that's really interesting, I think, is that a lot of people think this is something like a, a home science kit. <laughs> but it, 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 it's so much more than that. And it, it, it really has the, 
the potential of impacting and changing an entire family's life. So when my students say, I think I want to have my genetic testing, I say, go home for Thanksgiving, talk to mom and dad, talk to grandpa, grandma, cousins, and just tell them, you know, you're interested in doing this. And uh, explain to them that it could potentially impact their life. Because if you find out you've got a predisposition to something, then they now are at risk for that. And whether, whether and they didn't have a choice. You know, you, if you tell them that you found that you are BRCA1 positive, that you are predisposed to breast cancer, every other member of your family, both men and women, now are at risk for care, being carriers of that same gene, the gene mutation. Mm. And so that's what I tell people. It, it belongs to a family. It so, doesn't just belong to Something that you said reminded me of, of a parallel in the church. And you said you've got to have the community there to interpret the results for the person. Don't just leave them. It kind of sounds like what God did with the Bible. He gave us a community called the Catholic Church to interpret what it means. And that's true. It's because, you know, I think a lot of people simply assume that it's easy to read text. And, and I point out, look, communication is hard. Just talk to a husband and wife. Yes. Um, yes. And they've lived with each other for 40 years, and they still don't get it. <laughs> and, and yet, and we, and we somehow believe that we can simply take a book that was spoken thousands of years ago, we would get it without any confusion uh, or any source of misunderstanding. And I think you, you see that parallel with genetic testing. If, the, the genome is a book. It is a book written by God using an evolutionary process that has lasted millions of years. And there are particular ch- chapters of this book, particular genes in this book, particular mutations that are particularly difficult <laughs> to grasp. And we have to be very careful that we, we, ha- we, we take advantage of all the communal resources and spiritual resources that we have in play in order to grasp what it means, not only for us, but for everyone that we love. So just to confirm, right now you can't see a good reason for a layperson to order the home genetic testing for disease purposes. Well, put it this way. If a person uh, had a suspicion that his family had was carrying a mutation, so for example, you know, a woman notices that many of the women in her family has breast cancer, Yes. then, then I would tell her, instead of getting a home genetic test, Go to your doctor and ask your doctor if he would be willing to walk with you and get you that genetic test in the context of a medical checkup. That sounds And that way, you know, so so whatever reason, if you have a reason to, to wonder whether or not you have a genetic mutation, well, get a genetic test. Just don't get a home genetic test. Just go to your doc and speak to your doc. You can, there are also options where you can speak to your doc and say, look, I think I'm going to get a home genetic test, but I want to do that after talking to you so that you will be there with me if I need to talk about one of the results of these genetic tests. I, I, I just want to really deter any of your members of your audience of going alone. Hmm. That sounds like a great idea. Uh, but you don't see a big risk if they want to do the ancestry part and do not check the box for disease results. I, I think so. I mean, I think it's just pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, the savior of the world knew his genealogy, right? We know his genealogy. We went, you, all you have to do is read the opening verses of a couple of Matthew and R- Luke. Luke, yes. And, and so there, 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 there's, there's a natural, I think there's a natural desire to know where we've come from. And... One of the things that's really striking, of course, is that this genetics shows us how similar we are. Mm. And how that's really important, we, especially. Um, one of the things we discover is that we are descended from, a, from an incredibly small group of human beings. And I've argued elsewhere that one of these human beings was Adam. And this, this, person, this person, the first human being, was the you know, the, the first speaking primate, and we are all descended from him because we all can speak. And, and I think that the genetics confirms that we are much more alike than different. And I think that's really important today, where mm. there are tendencies both politically and culturally and socially to distinguish rather than to unify. Mm. 
I, I like this one billboard that I've seen. When it, it talks about racism. And he says, you know, we'll have gotten there when we all belong to the same race, mankind. <laughs> and I think that's what it sounds like you're saying. We are of the same one race. Yeah, we are the same one. See, I, I'm a Christian. I would say, no, we belong not to mankind, but to the kingdom of heaven. Oh, mm. better yet. Better you know, and I because because I think that's so because mankind mankind looks at the past. Uh huh. We belong to the communion of saints, and um, that has all our friends and our enemies in mm. a way that heals. You know, and I think that's really important that 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 we remember that that we that mankind is broken. The communion of saints is healed, and I'm looking forward to that. Father, I just have to say, you know, if we were to rewind the tape and listen to your resume, we're not accustomed to hearing PhDs from MIT talk like you. <laughs> but we're glad that you are you, and you're with us today. Well, you well, speak a beautiful you know, science when my, language. When my, students, when my students say, what are you first? I say, I am a priest first. <laughs> That's beautiful. I'm a priest to happen to have a PhD from MIT. And, and that's you what, know, and you know, we like to say we are Catholics who happen to be physicians. That's correct. Amen. And, um, uh, you know, people say, what's the most important thing you know? And I say, I know Jesus Christ. Mm, amen. Hey, are there any genetic companies that you think are more reliable than others? Or are, I, are they pretty I don't equal? know that. I think they're, they're, uh, I think they're actually people who test that. You can Google that online. I just don't want to endorse anybody, which is why I've not mentioned any specific company. Mm, but right. I believe that there are tests. There are people who actually do that quality control, and you can just go online and, and, and Google that to see what you know what quality typical consumer behavior quality versus sure. cost. Are, are there any resources you would recommend our listeners can access to delve more deeply into this, if that's possible? <laughs> Well, one of the things that's really interesting is that many of these companies have really, really informative, and and and, and not just informative, but I think sensitive. They were written in a way that is that is responsible and ethically sensitive. Just read the introduction to many of their kits. Oh, very good ethical introduction. And, and what final comments would you like to leave with our listeners about home genetic testing? Um, they're great but they're not everything. Well, I think that pretty much sums it up, Father. Thank you. I mean, <laughs> thank you for giving us such a beautiful intersection of science and faith. Uh, and thank you for reminding us that just because we could doesn't necessarily mean that we should. Father Nicanor Ostriaco, Providence College professor, thank you so much for being with us. On You're Dr. very Dr. welcome. God, God bless you. And you also. Welcome back to the studios of Redeemer Radio with this edition of Dr. Doctor, and it is time to get the answer for a medical trivial question. So remember, we are in the Jeopardy category of one-syllable scientific word coined in 1905 from a Greek word meaning race, a Proto-Indo-European root meaning give birth or beget. It's a very commonly used scientific word that refers to over 20,000 entities found in the human body. And as a clue, it was used many, many times in this episode. It's usually preceded by the word blue. Right. <laughs> blue Hawaii. No. <laughs> blue. My world is blue. No. It's gene. The word is gene. And if you look at it, the first book of the Bible starts with this, those four letters, right? G-E-N-E, -E, Genesis. So beginnings or beget. And in the book of Genesis, of course, there are, are many lineages uh, that are portrayed. And uh, I thought I would do an easy question and have mercy on the audience. So thank you for listening to the energetic and incredibly erudite Father Nicanor Ostriaco, who, by the way— squeezed us in uh, in a 40-minute window between two lectures he was teaching to college students. I mean, just incredibly amazing. You know, he left us with that sense that it would be tempting with all of the science and the molecular biology that to think that you and I are nothing more than our collection of genes. Yes. But listening to Father talk, it, it, it comes through so loud and clear that there's much, much more to us than just our genes and our mutations and our diseases. It, it's like faith and reason are incarnated in the way that Father Nicanor presents this beautiful information. 
Our listeners have been good enough to send us questions, so we want to be good enough to give you answers. We have two questions this time which are right in Chris's wheelhouse, Uh so I will be posing them and he will be answering them. The first one comes from Maria in Plattsmouth, Nebraska from the Church of the Holy Spirit. She said that on a previous show we talked about how increasing exposure to estrogen in women who never become pregnant to full term increases a woman's risk for certain cancers and maybe other health concerns. But she says she's also heard us say that we recommend hormone replacement therapy in women after menopause. Chris, when would you prescribe hormone replacement therapy in a postmenopausal woman? Yeah, Maria, thanks for that question. I, I hope you get to be listening here uh, for the answer. The topic of postmenopausal hormone replacement therapy, incredibly controversial, really large nurses' health studies that we've talked about with other guests, uh, looked at the risk of breast cancer and hormone replacement therapy. And it looks like the takeaway from those studies are that hormone replacement therapy may statistically slightly increase a woman's risk of breast cancer, but you can't stop there. It might decrease her chance of colon cancer. We used to think it would decrease her risk of heart disease. Later we learned that wasn't uh, completely true. Now we know that it decreases her chance of what we call all-cause mortality. The bottom line is it's very confusing. And I'll make it even more confusing. So they didn't differentiate in those studies what kind of estrogen the woman was taking. So there's uh, several different estrogens in the human body. There's estradiol and estriol and estrone. Some of them are synthetic. Some of them are plant-based that you can buy and take as hormone replacement therapy. Uh, Some of them are so-called bioidentical. We may get a chance to talk about in a moment. Well, in the nurse's health study that looked at the risk of breast cancer, they were all thrown together. Ah. So my personal bias, and it is a bias, is that bioidentical estrogens, it's hard for me to imagine that that would increase a woman's risk of breast cancer because they're identical to the estrogens that she naturally made. At the same time, we have to remind ourselves that a woman's body is not designed to be exposed to estrogen all of her life. Menopause, which the average age is around 54, really means the absence of estrogen production. So by design, she's supposed to stop seeing estrogen at some point in her life. So those are competing views, and I don't have an answer, not an easy one. So what I say to patients in my office is if you need to take estrogen for a symptom, maybe uh, intractable hot flashes or night sweats or maybe vaginal dryness, something like that, then you should take the lowest dose you can take for the shortest amount of period that you can take it. And when you do that, you should not worry about it. That sounds like a wise answer, Chris. And let's go for another wise answer. Let's go two for two here. <laughs> this uh, question from Kimberly from Sacred Heart of Jesus Parish in Jessup, Pennsylvania. She says she loves the show and she liked the episode where we had a guest, Dr. Angela Lanfranchi, talking about breast cancer who advised not to use artificial hormone replacement therapy. And so Kimberly's question is about what Chris just mentioned, bioidentical hormone replacement. Uh, She sees a physician who specializes in healthy aging who happens to be an OBGYN doctor like Chris, although no one can be just like Chris. (laughs) Aren't they lucky? (laughs) She prescribes estradiol, progesterone, and testosterone creams based on individual needs from saliva tests. So she's 54 perimenopausal, um, what do you think about bioidentical hormones for someone like her? Yeah, certainly it's appealing. In the Creighton technology, Napper technology world in which I live, we use so-called bioidentical progesterone, which is a plant-based progesterone. We use it in pregnancy and feel very good about its safety because it is, after all, identical to the progesterone that the pregnant woman uh, makes. So if I have to take a hormone, I would personally prefer to take a bioidentical one. That does not mean that I can go to a huge double-blind randomized study that proves bioidentical is safer than synthetic. I can't do that. To my knowledge, that study isn't there. It's just a judgment. Another question that's sort of hidden in her question is this concept of salivary testing. Yes. Incredibly complicated. Uh, patients often bring me their salivary testing results. And I have to say, I really don't know how to interpret them. I I don't know how to help you with that because it's a language that I don't speak. And we don't know what 
target organ levels are supposed to be based on salivary tests. So there are plenty of people that interpret salivary tests. I'm not one of those people. I don't begrudge those who do, but uh, as an OBGYN, it's not my area of expertise, and I'm not so sure there's a lot of data to support that. But I'd be willing to be shown otherwise if, uh, if one of our listeners wants to write in and direct me in that, in that way. Thanks for those answers, Chris. Uh, and thanks for those questions, listeners. Oh, yeah. Uh, keep them coming. And in summary for uh, Father Nicanor, I thought it was wonderful that he gave us a very clear answer of where he thinks right now the use for these home genetic tests is. Great if you're curious about your ancestry. Mm. Not a good idea in almost any circumstance for medical results. You know, the phrase I loved that I wrote down, I'm going to save, your genome doesn't belong to you. It belongs to you and your family. Yes. So you finding out as an individual that you have a particular genetic trait, especially if it relates to maybe predisposition to a disease, you couldn't, or you, at least you shouldn't, hold that to yourself. That's, that's something you need to share with your family because you may all share those traits. Yes. Uh, I just love uh, the wisdom of him. I'm going to be going back to this to, to glean some more of this information, but he just had so many tidbits. You know, I love the way that he kept talking about relationship, whether it was relationship with a provider, yes. a healthcare provider, or relationship with your family. Um, we're not just little robotrons driving back and forth to work every day. We're, desi <laughs> we're designed by our creator to live in community, in relationship. We are not our own. <laughs> Listeners, thank you for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. And be sure to rate and review our show. It helps new listeners find us. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we'll be discussing the medical aspects of the Shroud of Turin with Dr. Scott Finch. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.